I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. The Mr. Beacon Podcast is sponsored by Williot. Scaling IoT with battery-free Bluetooth. Welcome to the Mr. Beacon podcast. This week we are going to be talking about failure and some other related things. I'm really delighted to have Dr. Samuel West with me, curator, amongst other things, of the Museum of Failure. Samuel, thanks very much for joining us. Great. It's a pleasure being on your show. <laughs> well, I, think so. I don't know yet. I'm just saying that. I might regret it. <laughs> yeah. Well, this could be a failure. It could be a failure on many, many levels, but I have a feeling it, it won't be. It be my first failure, so that's okay. <laughs> well, we're going to talk about that, but there's a few things I wanted to cover in this because uh, people may be wondering, what the heck? Because normally we're talking about wireless technologies, but um, um, I, I, I saw you present um, in Copenhagen. We were both part of the Deloitte Digital Agenda Summit, which... Looked like it was going to be a failure. The, the, the conference was booked with one of the biggest uh, meeting spaces in Copenhagen. The chairs were set out. And then we were told, we can't do this anymore. But I assume no. you, you flew in like me. I flew in from uh, the States. And I was kind of wondering, why the heck am I doing this? But, uh, you know, it's Deloitte. And it was just... Uh, you know, I wanted to honor the commitment. So we, I, th I guess we both flew in uh, and it turned out yeah. there were uh, a thousand people online watching this thing. And yeah. so we thought it was going to be a failure. We embraced it and it turned out to be a success. And I think actually over the months, there'll probably be more people watching it than would have done otherwise. But I just want to get to the agenda for this session, which is... Um, you know, uh, you've specialized in failure and, uh, and play as well in your career. So, um, you know, why look at, why talk about failure? It's because of lessons learned. It's, I think, about a philosophy of embracing failure and how that can help you as a person and as a company, as a team. Um, and also want to talk a bit about our pet area, which is not your area of specialism, but Bluetooth <coughs> beacons. And you could argue that that has failed. You can argue that it succeeded, but it was it certainly had some of the hallmarks of some of the the exhibits in the Museum of Failure, which it was really hyped. Um, so that's what I'd like to cover. There's actually many, many other things I want to cover, but it's basically lessons learned, uh, kind of how we can uh, um, 
do better uh, for ourselves, whatever that means. Um, and then we'll talk a bit about uh, beacons at the end and probably many other things. But first of all, what is the Museum of Failure? <laughs> um, the, the Museum of Failure is a collection of over 100. I actually think we, at my last count was 130 uh, different innovations uh, that have failed. And these innovations can be you know, tech products, they can be um, uh, medical pr products, they can be digital services, anything that would be considered something that would be considered an innovation uh, is welcome in the museum as long as it's failed. Yes. So, um, and then, so the innovation is sort of the easy part. I mean, so the, the Samsung, um, I think, what was the name of the Samsung that, that exploded on planes? Oh, yeah, um, the, the Note. The Galaxy, was it the Note or the Galaxy something? The right? Galaxy Note. The Galaxy yes. Note, yeah. yeah. So I, I have like four of them. People keep sending me these Galaxy Notes saying, I had to donate to your museum. It'll never make it into the museum because it was not an innovation. It was just crap manufacturing and quality control. Right. Um, so that's not going to be in the museum ever. Um, but the you know Samsung Fold that recently came out, that one will make it. I can't afford it right now, but <laughs> maybe someone will donate um, this. Maybe someone will hear it. <laughs> yeah, send it to me. <laughs> but you have some amazing um, that one stuff. Definitely belongs in the museum. But but it's actually. Yeah, I, mean, I just want to like differentiate because the the difference between just failure and innovation failure for me. The important part for the, for this collection is that it be something that's um, innovative. Right. And so you, uh, you're a writer. You, um, um, you, uh, you, you're a public speaker. So you came to the Deloitte thing in Copenhagen. And, um, you know, listening to you, it's very amusing. I mean, it's, we love laughing at failure, don't we? Especially if it's other people's. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Well, there, there is a, there is a nice quote, and I don't know who to attribute this to, but um, it's probably German. Um, uh, it's wise wise people or wise people learn from their own failures, but it's even wiser to learn from the failures of others. Yes. Um, and there's something like that going on in the museum, absolutely. But the enjoyment part, I mean. Doesn't matter how you approach failure, at least in this context, where you know it's not about people dying or getting hurt for the most part. Um, that it's it's it is it, it is humorous. I mean, there's something about it that's that's funny, you know. It's, um, yeah, it's not about people dying or getting hurt, but it is about people getting diarrhea, isn't it? That's that's kind of one of the, 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 one of the famous. Funny you mentioned that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the Colgate uh, lasagna, or what was that? The Colgate lasagna is one example of like a, a brand that um, didn't understand the you know the brand itself. And Colgate, this is from the um, branding, uh, the literature on branding and branding failure, brand failures. In the 1980s, uh, Colgate launched a, a, a product of frozen dinners, TV dinners. Um, and I don't have the originals, uh, but the, the branding says, you know, like whatever the regular frozen dinners would be for my museum, we recreated it as a Colgate lasagna. Um, 
And that's just one of those funny failures that I'm not sure there's like a whole bunch of learning to be gained. It's just, you know, what were they thinking? Um, you remember, you're, you're old enough to remember New Coke, yeah? I remember New Coke, yes. Yeah. And it just didn't go down. Yeah, it was no, it didn't. It was one of Coca-Cola's biggest mistakes um, that, that ironically boosted sales of Coca-Cola in the long run. But that's another story. Well, how did that um, work? So, so I mean, so, so I, I, I'm sort of torn here because we could just spend the time laughing at companies yeah. and, and, and not learning, couldn't we? Um, but the point is, we can learn. Um, but um, how did how did so do you think Coke learned from that experience? And, and how did they benefit from the failure? Um, two, uh, two, two questions. A, uh, they, so Pepsi was the underdog and um, they, Pepsi did something called, and I remember this in, in, in Sacramento where I grew up, um, they had to pep- take the Pepsi challenge. Mm-hmm. So they would be at markets and different events and places. You could go there and you get little, little plastic mugs of, of Coca-Cola and Pepsi and you got to try both of them. And um, people preferred Pepsi, like that's what Pepsi said, you yes. know. Um, and then apparently Coca-Cola did their own market research, and they found out that people actually preferred Pepsi. So <laughs> Coca-Cola decides that they're like, hmm. Well, uh, they changed their classic, their sort of secret iconic recipe, and made Coke taste more like Pepsi. And uh, people hated it. They're like, don't touch our brand. This is ours, you know? Yes. Uh, we love Coke. We don't want Pepsi. Well, we buy Pepsi, you know? Uh, there was a huge you know, backlash against Coca-Cola, and they had to retreat and say, okay, okay, we're going to keep new Coke there, and they rebranded Coke as new Coke, and then they gave old Coke the, the name Classic, which you can still see on the cans and bottles today. Yes. So Coca-Cola Classic, um, and then they phased out New Coke uh, later on. Now, it's a huge it was a huge you know failure on, on Coca-Cola's part. But the, the the interesting thing is that people were so afraid of losing, not getting any more Coke, so they they hamstered it. They they went crazy uh, buying Coke Classic which boosted Coca-Cola's sale. And the CEO of Coca-Cola said in some, later after the fact that, yeah, um, like, yeah, it did boost our sales, but we're not that smart. Like, this is too, <laughs> <laughs> this well, is too good for us. Yeah. So the, if we're on the topic of learning from, from failure, um, you know, what are you if you you're a organizational psychologist and so you kind of got into this for maybe whimsical reasons but also serious reasons it <laughs> seems to me and I, I do want to talk a bit about i was actually skimming through your phd thesis on play at work and uh, it's fascinating yeah. so i want to get i want to get into that uh, eventually uh, if we have the the, the time but um uh, do you have can, can you summarize in some way um you know, what, how organizations should deal with failure? Because it seems like if we stick our head in the sands and we say our strategy is to never fail as an organization, that is like just dumb, isn't it? It's just completely unrealistic. So you will fail, 
The question is how you treat failure. Um, and, um, you know, basically, I guess it's about risk taking. And then uh, how much risk do you want to take as an organization? And that's a dial you can play with. And uh, I don't think yeah. you can say there's a right or a wrong answer to that, is there? It's like for startups, if we're not taking risks, then why be a startup? We should be yeah. IBM. Yeah. You know? um, yeah, you should be, you're wasting your time. Um, well, I mean, there's several aspects. One is um, organizations, and this is one of the aims. I mean, one of the aims of the museum is to drive home the point that we need to accept failure if we want progress or innovation. So that's what that's like number one. Yes. Number two, which comes from my background as an organizational psychologist, is that um, organizations need to improve their learning from failure. So, and this is something... This is something that gets, that gets that gets tricky right away because um, you often hear about Silicon Valley. Oh, they're like the oh they fail forward and this fearlessness, yes. and they they are good. I mean, they're really good at, at, at accepting failure, but they're horrible at learning from failure. So they got the one part right, but they didn't get the second part right. Um, not any more than any other uh, yeah. organization. Area. So, and that's quite interesting. So, the the so if organizations want, on the one hand, they need if they want in, innovation and think that that's important, which just about any organization on planet Earth thinks, um, they need to accept failure. There's not there's not really an option there. But but learning from failure does require a willingness to discuss it, to talk about it, um, to spend some time and resources trying to glean some kind of learnings from it. Because it's, it's seldom straightforward. Um, it's easy to learn from success and, and best practices, but it's really difficult and sort of tricky to learn from failure because it's not, it's very, it's not. Well, I would argue, actually argue that uh, sometimes it can be hard yeah. to learn from success, can't it? Um, you, that's why I think the phrase is... You, sorry, yeah, there, there's yeah. a really horrible line here, but, uh, you know, you're in Spain, I'm in San Diego, we should be grateful <laughs> there's any line. Um, so um, I would argue I've met a whole bunch of people that have worked for successful organizations and they've learned the wrong lessons from it. They think the success is all due to them and what they did. And actually what they did is completely irrelevant to the success. Of it's completely the irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah, I always, uh, I always do push-ups at the start of my day. And I work for, uh, for Google. And it's clearly, you know, that's the thing that's making me successful. No, it's because you've got Google on your business card. And everyone's clamoring to talk to you, and uh, therefore your uh, opportunity space is massive, and you can be an idiot and actually probably do reasonably well. Um, so, but anyway, let's get back to is there a company or are there companies that you've seen that are really good at failure? As in, A, accepting it, and B, maybe the harder thing, which is you've put your finger on, which is learning, learning from it. Yeah. Okay, this is this is a trite example, but um, Amazon. I mean, I can't think of a single big, you know, big company that is just, you know, kicks ass, <laughs> so to speak, when when it comes to both accepting failure, understanding the role of failure for their success, and learning from it, uh, and then adapting to it. They they're just phenomenal. Um, and there's something, I mean, Google or, or Alphabet 
is also, I mean, they're really good at accepting failure, but if you look at their, you know, their huge list of failed innovations, you could argue that Google is great at, uh, at, at initiating innovation, but they're pretty bad at actually maintaining any of that or, or, or you know, bringing them to market and being profitable on those, on, on their most exciting innovations. So yeah. they, I mean, I, I would, I'm not in a position to say Google isn't learning from their failures, but considering how many failures they have, they should learn a bit more, you would think. Yeah. Whereas, yeah. Well, so get, if I look at Amazon, and that embracing of failure, uh, my, you know, my intuitive sense, and I don't know, is Jeff Bezos just happens to be a genius. And therefore, he looks at his organization. Um, I'm not sure if he embraces failure. I, I, I'm just trying to imagine myself going to Jeff Bezos and saying I screwed <laughs> up. Or, uh, I, I screwed a little up. Bit of I a, need another 30 million. <laughs> yeah. But um, it seems like one way to learn from failure is have a genius in a leadership position. And um, you kind of either have those or you don't. Um, is there, if, if I was a general manager or a CEO, you know, other than paying attention and thinking about it myself, is there a, and, and, and not firing people uh, or humiliating them for failure? Um, is there anything else I can do other than steering the culture? Is there like a debrief process or what, what, what would you advise? Yeah, I mean, one of them, I mean, if you look at sort of the, if you look at it as, a, as, 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 as behavior, I mean, taking risks, meaningful risks, uh, and being willing to discuss uh, your own failure or the failure of your team or the company. Um, <clears throat> there's two aspects. One, obviously, if, if, if the organization is punishing, penalizing, uh, risk-taking by penalizing failure, then obviously that behavior is going to decrease, period. That's just basic psychology. Yeah. Uh, and then you have the second aspect, which... Um, you know, uh, the concept of psychological safety brilliantly sort of illustrates is that if you have a, a culture within a team that uh, allows people to take interpersonal risk to, to you know, uh, ask stupid questions, uh, to be, to ask uncomfortable questions, uh, and feel safe within that team, that they won't be punished for, for that, um, that does increase a willingness to take risks that are or can be meaningful and it also increases the ability and willingness for those team members to to actually learn from their failures so <clears throat> something about creating creating a culture of this sense of safety within the team it's not lack of accountability so it definitely not that you're highly accountable but you are also there's an acceptance that when when you take you know, big risks or when you do things that are new for you or the organization or extremely challenging, then you will most likely fail. And that there's, um, there's, it's not built into the, the, the system or the infrastructure, the reinforcement structure of the organization, that that will be punished. Um, I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm babbling here. But no, no, it's good. I'm, 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 so I'm just really thinking about how, what you're doing, yeah, uh, what I, you're saying. Yeah. I, I just think like the, the most important thing is the culture, um, but the culture is also decided by, you know, reward mechanisms within organization, for example. The, the problem with one of the, 
James March, one of the, the biggest organizational psychologists, he's like, yeah, one of the one of the problems is because of the way organizations are built, this is like bigger organizations, not, not startups necessarily, um, is that it's sort of a, a, a refinement process that the selection process towards people who are who don't take risks and don't fail. So at the top you have people who, you know, at least traditionally, uh, are risk aversive and are prone to penalizing people who do take those risks. Yeah. Um, I think if you that's can, one aspect, yeah. as a leader, if you can talk about your own failures in a kind of with humility and honesty, and uh, that's probably a good thing, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's one thing we found, I mean, when it comes to my research on, on organizational playfulness is that, um, and in, in we'll, we'll get to that later, but I mean, a big part of play is exploration and experimentation. And those are two super failure, uh, high failure rate of those two behaviors or activities. And um, if the only way you can get people in an organization to take to be willing to experiment and explore is if the leaders are demonstrating it by uh, role modeling it by example. Yeah. Um, there is no other way. That's, that's good. So um, one thing I wanted to ask you about this uh, Silicon Valley maxim of about fail fast, fail fast. And everyone's like, yeah, of course we should fail fast. Let's all do that. Can you yeah. fail too fast? Do you think, because uh, you know, I personally think so. I think, uh, yeah, I think it's great that we're embracing the possibility of failure. We're taking risks and we don't like do the whole waterfall development. We put something out there and we see if it works. That's clearly good. It's hard to argue against that. But what I yeah. see is people try something and something goes wrong and maybe they lose a little face and then they give up. And that's, to me, that's just as bad. You're that's failing too fast. Yeah. I mean, there's uh, one of the founders of Fuck Up Nights. I can't remember her name. Uh, I, can't, I can't remember her name. Uh, but I just saw a, 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 like a TED Talk or something by her. And she said that um, she doesn't want people to fail more because that's, that's a stupid, I mean, that in, in business context, no, don't fail more. But I want people to fail better. Like, I want you to fail mindfully. Yes. So when you fail fast, you're not mindful. You're not learning from it. There's nothing to be gained by that, only loss. But if you can fail mindfully, uh, then you can learn from it. And then hopefully that won't be a failure. Yeah, I think so. Mindful failing. Yeah, that, that, but, yeah. but what I'm really saying is persistence. And because you're not scared of failure, you say, oh, well, we tried this. We're trying to achieve this goal, this product, and this didn't work. Let's not scrap the product. Let's think about what no. went wrong. Let's fix yeah. it. And then let's experiment some more. Uh, it's yeah. kind of, that's what I'm arguing for, at least. Um, you know what? And, and, yeah, so I just want to add something to that. Um, the there's something really useful about having an ex like a, a sort of if you look at processes uh, within the innovation sort of sphere in organizations where if you can if you have a sort of an experimental mindset, then I mean if you if you say we have these goals, we want to reach these you know, these results. Um, um, failure is much better if you fail early on in a project. <laughs> Yes. Um, rather than late, because you know it's cheaper and it's easier, and there's 
you know, less prestige, et cetera, less invested in it. Um, why not fail boldly when it, you know, in the, in the, in the initial stages of, 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 of these, you know, projects? Um, and take, you know, great leaps and then fail you know, horribly when it doesn't, like, cost the organization, you know, their life. Yeah. Uh, okay, but, that's good. Yeah, so, so increase the failure rate early on in experimentation, which is, you know, okay, Silicon Valley does lead in that, in that aspect, uh, but I see it with, with organizations. I mean, I primarily work with European companies, and they... They invest all of their innovation sort of at the end. So they do they do a traditional sort of what do we need, what does the market need, you know, what if it's new product development. They they start early on deciding what what how the end result is of what it's supposed to be like, rather than experimenting early. They experiment late, and then failure hurts much more. That totally makes sense. Well, I think we could talk about this for hours, and I'd actually like to. But uh, <laughs> so I think we've actually succeeded in talking about embracing failure. So well done us. But we failed uh, to talk about the lesson, you know, what are the principal causes of failure? And you must have seen that. Are there like a handful of the things, the, the patterns that you see of, uh, that drive failure? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Um, there's, a, there's a quote by Leo Tolstoy, the Russian author, and he wrote in uh, one of his novels, he wrote, all happy families are alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in their own specific way, or their own special way. Yeah. <laughs> and there's some, I was like, hmm, that's great, uh, because that really applies to failure as well within innovation, because you know, most of the successful innovations, they're sort of, yeah, they're alike. <laughs> right. Uh, uh, but if you look at the failed innovations, there are so many ways to fail. Like there's, there's, you know, you can fail in ways you didn't even think was possible. <laughs> um, and so my, my standard answer to that question is that that's what I think makes it so interest. What makes failure so interesting is that there's, there's really, there are sort of categories and sort of, um, 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 
groupings or reasons of why why uh, innovation is failure. But for the most part, there isn't actually. Really. Um, and I think that's fast. I wish I wish I could say, yeah, here's the top four reasons. But yeah. um, I have some. I mean, one is hubris. Um, if 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 they um, you know a company is too confident in their product or their technology uh, and just develop something that nobody needs or wants. What's, or what's an example of that? To just... I mean, I mean, one example is Google Glass. Yes. I mean, what? <laughs> what were you supposed to use that thing for, actually? It was cool, but what, what, what's the function? Yes. Zero. Like, yeah. And it took them how many years to actually, 2013, yeah, eight years? Yeah. to get it working. Um, I mean, that was the first thing that came to my mind. Um, but there's, there's, I mean, and also, also when there's an overconfidence in uh, amongst the leaders of the organization, um, and they don't listen to maybe the engineers or the salespeople or people on the, on the factory floor. Um, uh, one, one would be Ford Edsel. It's a historical example. Um, Ford's biggest failure, one of the biggest failures, it was a new car named after Ford's either son or grandson, I'm, I can't remember, huh. Ford. So in the 1950s, um, they, it was a lot of technological innovation, but primarily there was an innovation in the forms of, like, you could buy it in, I think it was 27 different varieties of cars for that Ford. And today we take it for granted, but then that was, that was new and crazy. Um, and Ford was so confident, they just bulldozed this thing through. They had their own uh, entertainment show with Frank, Frank Sinatra. Um, they were pushed, the Etsu was a guaranteed success, and they forced their um, dealers to buy huge amounts of Ford, of Ford Etsu cars in advance. And they were like skeptical, like, what's, you know, this isn't quite right. But Ford was like overconfident. And sure enough, uh, it failed, and it was one of the most embarrassing failures for the company. Um, and that could have been possibly avoided had Ford uh, listened to their dealers, listened to the customers. But um, I think you know, the fascinating thing about this subject is for every reason that you, come up, you can come up with for failure, that can also be a reason for success. I'm telling you, it's difficult. <laughs> <laughs> like you know, uh, I was I was reading an interview with you that was published recently, uh, which is very good, and they um, they talked about the about what you described the hubris of the leader. Basically, there's this maniacal uh, following of the leader, but then you look at like um, Apple, and you know they're, they're run by a dictator in the uh, in the old days doing things yeah. in a very unorthodox way. Um, you know, the normal functionaries would not support it, but they did it because basically he did it. So on one hand, you have leaders who make bets and sometimes they make good bets and sometimes they make bad bets. And so that's like, that's very, very and, and that's I mean, for, for any example of failure um, in this context, you can always twist it like, yeah, but you know, it for, for, for the next iteration of that innovation, it was a huge success. Um, or, or, or products being launched too early, they were just ahead of their time, um, or too late. Um, and there's so many, the, the variables, like if you would graph this out, the variables, there's so many 
sort of uh, variables here that it's impossible to plot this. <laughs> yeah, I would argue, here's my argument, timing is one of the biggest causes, you got the wrong timing is one of the biggest causes of failure because yeah, you- Yeah, you can be too early and too late, you know? Yes, so the answer isn't be earlier and the answer isn't being late, <laughs> it's be smart about timing and really think about uh, uh, the risks you're, you're taking. Um, uh, because, because I, I was, I don't. Did you see the documentary about General Magic? That's it's everyone's got time to watch documentaries. Oh, okay, it's, I'm gonna uh, watch it. I, I think it's on Netflix. Super interesting. Basically, What's they, it General Magic. General yeah. Magic, and the fact that you know they're not well known is amazing because they basically invented the smartphone. The problem is they did it ten years before. <laughs> you know, they, it, it was a it was a spin-off from uh, it was the Newtons alter ego um, ah. and there were basically two projects one in apple uh, which was the newton and one outside of apple and and you look at this playbook and it's it's actually it's you you read the playbook that they wrote and they describe the use cases and the user interfaces and it's like oh my god that's what we're doing now that's, only this was like yeah. 20 years ago um, and uh, the hardware just wasn't good enough it wasn't good enough, and and many other things. They set expectations that were unrealistic with partners. So the, they had amazing partners, and then they all peeled off because the <laughs> expectations. So it, 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 I think you'll really enjoy it. But it kind of reminded me. Uh, I don't know if you've watched the Bill Gates um, uh, TED talk about viruses and. Yeah, Basically, yeah, yeah. A few years ago, and he predicts everything that we're all going through at the moment. It was that same feeling. It's like. Oh my God, deja vu. Um, I, I want to talk a bit about the Beacon ecosystem because that's kind of what we do. And I know you're not a Bluetooth yep. Beacon guy, but you deal with gadgets and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, I think that um, the Bluetooth Beacon ecosystem could be regarded as a failure because it had one of those Tell things me, that you yeah, were talking why? about. Why? Well, I, I think the hype was massive. It, it was like, uh, and people misunderstood the premise. So Apple came out with the iBeacon, um, and it was going to change the world. And every retailer said they were going to deploy iBeacons in all their, their stores. And they didn't realize this is actually a lot harder. Uh, and so, mm. you know, the, the challenges of scaling you know, Apple executed very well. They put beacons in all of their stores and, and their expectations mm. were very modest. They just wanted a welcome message. That's not, that's not successful. Yeah. yeah. For them, success was we want a welcome message when you cross the threshold of the Apple store rather than when you drive into the car park of a mall. And actually, you mm. probably aren't going to go into an Apple store at all. They, so they, would de they had a geofence technology and it just wasn't working. And so they developed the beacon. And lo and behold, you you they use it today. You run the yeah. Apple Shopping app, and um, it welcomes you when you enter the store, and it switches into the other mode. But we, you know, those of us were like, oh, anything Apple does, it's amazing. And so the people were trying to do indoor location positioning down to a meter, and the technology just couldn't do it. It was uh, so. So I think that was the expectation thing. But my argument is, um, actually, this has spun off so many, a lot of companies have failed. Um, so there's probably most of the startups that raised venture capital, tried something, 
failed. But what I've seen is they've pivoted and they're actually doing things that are very mm. successful as a result. So, uh, you know, there's there's um, companies like uh, uh, there's a company called Inmarket. They're based up in California. And, um, you know, people looked at them as a beacon company. They you could buy an in-market beacon, but they're actually uh, an analytics company. They've turned into a, an amazing mm -hmm. analytics company. Um, um, and I look at uh, Williot as an example. So this kind of postage stamp size uh, tags that uh, basically a computer. <laughs> so I don't think we would be doing what we're doing if it hadn't been for the Beacon ecosystem, which uh, and who knows if we'll be successful. I think we will. We have uh, amazing momentum. But um, so that's, you know, my view on the ecosystem and is... What you, what I mean, the expectations, I think that I don't, we did sort of touch on that. But if you look at many of the stories of failure in, in the museum, the, you know, something that could possibly predict failure is definitely when the expectations are far higher than anything you could achieve. Um, and that, I, I think I, when I talked about hubris, that was one aspect of it. But just to, um, to promise whether it's investors or customers or partners, something that you can't deliver is a good, pretty good recipe for failure. And it doesn't matter if you're a startup. Um, if, if you can't deliver and you maybe get one shot or two, but you don't get three shots. Right. And I think, you know, I, I, I think that is a very fair assertion that you're, you're making. But I, my counter argument is it's a necessary, that failure that you identified is a necessary part of spinning up an ecosystem. Because unless you get 100 companies to try it, you won't figure out the 10 ideas that are good no. and then the three companies in those 10 companies that will become the gorillas that will dominate. That's my, that's my story and I'm sticking but, to but, it. But nobody, but nobody wants to be, I mean, evolution, the whole driver for life on earth is, is mutation. And what is it like 0.0001% actually survive. Right. Um, nobody wants to be those other 99%. Um, so, I mean, I, I think, I mean, the, expect, the expectations for a new technology does have to be high. You got to get people excited about it. But there's also something about that sort of when it, when it just gets saturated and people lose interest, like you see now with, you know, AI, blockchain, um, it's like, okay, all right, another person is going to talk about it. It's just boring um, because they overpromised. Yes. In one aspect, people like me who don't really understand it within the, uh, within the machine learning AI community, of course, they get it. But, but out to outsiders, they way overpromised. And it's just like, okay, it's not, yeah, that was, that was another one of those hyped up technologies, which still has massive potential, yes. um, obviously, but the, that, that's now, you know, uh, that segmentation is happening now that the hype is, is decreasing. So maybe it's a similar situation there with the beacon technology. I, I think so. And I think we'll, you know, fail fast. There's actually stuff, this story hasn't played out. I think there's other no. things, what Apple and Google are still doing with the technology is super interesting. But I think, you know, creative destruction as part of capitalism, we celebrate it. And evolution is a reality that some people acknowledge and celebrate. But 
it's it's a recipe for success, not for happiness, right? Uh, the, if you're on the wrong side of no, destruction, it's miserable. <laughs> it's horrible. It's horrible. <laughs> so I, I want to. We just got a couple of minutes left. Um, yeah. I, I want to um, switch. And we, we've talked a bit about lessons that you can be learned and how to deal with failure. And we've talked a bit about the the Bluetooth beacon ecosystem and uh, and failure. And I have a rosy eyed view of where this uh, leads still. <laughs> But I want to go back to your uh, roots in um, play. And how did you get from writing a doctoral thesis on playing <laughs> to where you are now? And and just to make this a really big question, yeah. um, uh, you know, tell us kind of what your opinion is of play in the office in high tech companies, because it's a bit of a bugbear for me. On one hand, I like Lego probably more than is healthy for the average uh, adult. I have my uh, tribute to the Italians same, here, the leaning power. Same, same adult, you mean. Okay, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> but um, um, the thing that I hate is the tokenism, which oh. I think you you call it play washing. Yeah. So let's, yeah. I, I've, I've rambled a bit. What, what is play washing? Tell us about that. Playwashing is the same thing as greenwashing. It's when a company, and this is very frequently, you see this with the with startups, um, where they say, we're so fun, we drink beer on Fridays, and we have ping pong tables in the lunchroom, and we're so awesome. We're, and then that's all just just sort of an image that's not real. Look at our slide. You know, we were inspired by Google's headquarters, so we have a slide, but you know, now we use it to store bookkeeping. <laughs> um, right. um, so it's sort of like pretending to have this this playful, uh, genuinely playful work environment when it's when it's not. Um, I saw that. It's, it's still a trend. I mean, I, I still see examples of that, and it's it does the company at this service and it does play at this service. Um, I think there's, I mean, play is so, what's so fascinating about play is that you can't force anybody to do it, you know? Um, so as soon as, you know, your, your, your boss or somebody in authority says, now you have to play and God damn it, you're going to like it too. <laughs> uh, then all of a sudden it doesn't, it, it just magically destroys that sort of the magical sphere of play because it has to be voluntary and forced play that's forced is play opposed. Right. And you can see this in any kind of team building exercises or corporate, you know, choreographed play where, you know, now we're going to do this and we're going to do it because it's fun and we're going to do it because, and you're going to enjoy it. And then people, they react to it like, no, you can't force me and you can't. Um, so it has to be voluntary, play has to be voluntary. It has to be self-motivated. And I would argue, and this is what gets me in trouble in organizations is that play is not result oriented. So, and this is something that a lot of creativity consultants and, you know, engagement at work consultants get sort of caught up in is that you can do activities in a playful way, but as soon as you put a layer of sort of expectation of, of results or objectives, then play also kind of like 
yeah, well, then it also kind of destroys the magic of it. And that's the connection to experimentation and exploration because those organizational activities or behaviors, they have to, you have to temporarily suspend sort of organizational ob objectives to do that. And that requires, I mean, to be able to play and have a playful approach to your work doesn't mean, you know, screwing around, doing completely irrelevant things. Yes. It means having an approach to work and to those tasks that you do it in a fun way, in, a, in an explorative, experimental way, um, where if you fail, it's still okay, it's acceptable. Um, and there's, it's impossible to, to force you know, a, a person to play and it's impossible, I would say, to take play and put it into an organizational context uh, and try to, you know, restrain it with those regular corporate restrictions yes. <laughs> and parameters. You, you, you have to let it be there and you have to accept the fact that it doesn't work. It, it's not focused on the organizational sort of results or objectives. Um, and that's what I think is the magic of it. And in that sort of... that. that area you, you're allowed to fail because you're not working directed you know perfectly efficiently working towards that objective you're you're taking a little pause here to to you know play with it very good well uh dr samuel west of the uh, museum of failure i i declare this interview a success you joined up uh, uh play with uh, with <laughs> failure um, we managed to make it work. The line's been a little bit uh, bad, but it's uh, uh, very cool to see you. I'm glad that you're safe um, and well, and uh, thanks very much for joining us. You just have to think of what three songs you would take on a trip to Mars. Three. Um, yeah. Um, I would take... I'm obsessed with the, right now, I'm obsessed with the Norwegian uh, electronic band called Roiksop. They just so, make the most beautiful music. Roiksop, R-O-Y-S-O-P-P. -P. I think it means, um, I think it means like magic mushroom or something. I'm not right. sure what it is. Wow. Um, and well, yeah, so what, which, um, uh, if you had to like one song, uh, can you name a song or, uh, it doesn't, uh, I actually, it doesn't, I mean, one of them is called what else is there. Okay. Very good. And another one is called the forsaken cowboy. I think I may, I might be mixing them together. And that's cool. So that's one. So you've got your Norwegian, yeah, yeah. <laughs> is it like heavy metal or, uh, no, 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 no. It's like uh, it's not dance electronica, but it's sort of it's it's elect it's you know it's electronic music. Okay. Um, Very cool. I can't, I can't describe it. <laughs> That's all right. Well, we'll maybe hear a little bit if we can find it on Spotify, which I assume we can. So we'll hear. A oh, little definitely. Bit. Yeah. I'll send I'll send, I'll send you the I'll send you the the, the links. Uh, True. To, Fantastic. Some of my favorite ones. So that's one. You got two left. Um. I also like, okay, this is also um, the most beautiful song like I've heard, and I love, I can listen to it you know, as much as possible, is um, Anne Brown. I think she's also Norwegian. I don't know why 
I have no other connection to Norway there. Um, but she sings a remake of Hero by, I think it's Beyonce or something, one of the big stars. Okay. She just does a remake of it. And it's just, it's, it's just so beautiful. So you're like, I, you know, can't believe it. <laughs> and it's just, it's, it's it, yeah, it's just her singing. Yeah. Um, the third one. Oh, wow. The third one. Oh, I heard Okay, so David Lynch. <laughs> David Lynch, the David film Lynch. director? Yeah. <laughs> right. The director. David Lynch has an, on Spotify, I think it's called, I'm not sure, but I think it's called B-Sides. And he does one song with Nicky Lee, a, a Danish singer, pop star, whatever. And she, and they do a, a collaboration that's, it's, it's called I'm Waiting Here. I think it's I'm Waiting Here. I'll send you that link as well. It's absolutely amazing. And it's David Lynch. You're like, he does music? Yeah, the guy's crazy, man. It's wonderful. That's so impressive when you, when you yeah, the Renaissance people are the, the, like uh, Mark Moran, who I, I really enjoy his podcast. Uh, he's, a, he's a great comic, but he also plays the guitar. It's pretty good. And uh, so impressive. Do you play instruments? I, I've struggled with the guitar, for, <laughs> so I, I'm actually not at home. I'm in my uh, mother's uh, um, uh, house in uh, in California at the moment, and uh, so she has a recorder. Just you can just about see, uh, I see behind me. I see that, uh, but it's not mine. It's yeah. not mine. So no, I, I okay. Maybe if this thing carries on, then I'll have the time to do it. But at the moment, actually, things are super busy. It's like, uh, where's this free time I'm supposed to be getting to? <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're, I mean, I mean, I thought so too with the lockdown. It's been here in Spain. It's been, I'd say I've lost track of time. I think it's been 12 days already. Yeah. Um, and now they just extended it by another 15 days. So... Um, it's going to be a month total, and first, the first few days, I was like, okay, this is kind of exotic, and it's kind of like, oh, this is novel. Yeah. Um, but then it got old, and I was so unproductive, and I just surprised myself with my level of unproductivity. Really? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. And then, and then, you know, after the first five or six days, now I don't, I haven't been as productive and busy for a long time. Yeah, it's great. Very good. Well, every cloud, as they say, has a silver lining. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. 
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.